Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And I am not your foot. I'm Darren Franich, <laughs> senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. Jeff, part nine of Twin Peaks. We watched it. It was not quite as cosmic as part eight was, but I thought we had a great time. And uh, certainly, as a big fan of Major Briggs, I think this was probably the most important hour of television in, in history. Uh, what did you think of part nine of the uh, revival season of Twin Peaks? You, you know, one of my, my favorite things about your recap of this episode is that you really got to, you know, sing your song of love and praise for the glory that is Major Briggs. I know that you love this character. And it was a really good episode for him, even though we never saw him. He was there in spirit, headless spirit, I guess, um, leaving messages across time, hidden in chairs, like some, like you know, a, a super spy or or, <laughs> or or something out of National Treasure. I don't know. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, next thing you know, we're going to find out that Garland Briggs has hid like stuff inside, like you know, the the Capitol or the Library of Congress or something like that. This is why all the Lincoln stuff has been happening this season. Do you there think the go. whole the whole final hour is going to take place inside of the Lincoln Monument? I th- this is an interesting <laughs> idea, Jeff. We have to develop this theory. Further. You know, <laughs> you know, it's funny you should say that. Like, we haven't talked about that specific. You know, I I've started this rewatch of all of Twin Peaks, and I start. I, I want to start start writing a series about things I missed. And man, have I missed a lot, you know. Um, (laughs) But just tracking all of the Lincoln motifs that have been there from the beginning in this show, you know, either like specifically Abraham Lincoln or essentially alluding to him, everything from like in the first episode, like, like Deputy Hawk has like a Lincoln log thing on his desk or that on Constance's desk, the the CSI in Buckhorn, she has a bust of Lincoln, a little bust of Lincoln on her desk. What? Or that Yeah, she does. Or the car that Dirty Cooper was driving when the Black Lodge tried to pull him out it is a Lincoln. So, um, and then, you know, of course, all of these motifs of Mount Rushmore, we see Lincoln's face on South Dakota driver's licenses, on license plates, um, and of course, all of this building to the Lincoln lookalike that played the woodsman last week. We're, we're, st- we're not even talking about this week's episode yet. We're just talking about the past. Um, but <laughs> but yes, I just, uh, the Lincoln fixation. No real Lincoln fixations this week. I was, I was rather disappointed. But maybe the, <laughs> the only thing that disappointed me about this week, no Lincoln references. But yes, a more terrestrial based episode of Twin Peaks uh, this week, but no less cosmic given all the things that were talked about, especially Bill kind of walking us through this weird scenario in which we find out, we get some insight finally into how Ruth died, um, how Major Briggs lost his head. There was a lot more mystery that was generated in this episode, but there was a lot of answers too. And my my last like prefatory kind of uh, thing that I'll say about this episode is that you know, if you ever wondered what it would be like if David Lynch did a weekly police procedural, we saw it last night because it was a very procedural episode, just 
police people doing business, the FBI, the South Dakota cops, the Twin Peaks cops, this kind of mix of sort of like real logical police work, like the little scam they pulled on Dougie to get his DNA fingerprints, to just like other ways in which mysteries are going to be solved on this episode, on this show. Like if, if anyone predicted that's how Ruth and Major Briggs died, <laughs> like, you know, again, go to Vegas and play the slots because you are Mr. <laughs> Mr. Jackpots. Like, yeah. So, but yeah, it was the CSI. It was the law and order. It was the David Lynch does procedural hour. It was a lot of fun. It was super funny, super funny. Yeah. I just liked how, um, you know, one of the things I think may have been just so like frustratingly strange about the early hours of this season, like, uh, you know, upon first watching them, was this sense of like, God, how many investigative squads of people do we have to follow? I mean, besides the Twin Peaks Sheriff's PD, there's the Buckhorn people, and there's Gordon Cole and his FBI branch, and there's Lieutenant Knox and the Pentagon, and the, you know, and it, it was just so gratifying to realize, and I think basically like, like the second scene, but like, like the first major sequence of this episode was Gordon Cole getting a phone call from Colonel Davis at the Pentagon. And it was like, <laughs> all right, like, God, this like insane, you know, investigative like bureaucracy, it's all kind of finally starting to come together here. I, I just felt like, like th- that for me was just a great moment from the beginning of being like, okay, like, you know, this will be an hour of things really starting to kind of merge together. These sort of different story streams and these different, in- and these different investigations kind of, you know, maybe becoming a single investigation, you know? Right. Well, you started us off there in South Dakota. That scene with Gordon Cole was one of the first uh, scenes of the show. But the very first scene of the show, which I thought was a, a really interesting image, was Dirty Cooper walking along a dirt road somewhere in South Dakota on his way to presumably the farm, the place that was referenced last week. They were en route somewhere, he and Ray, before they took a little detour into the woods where uh, uh, where the passion of Dirty Cooper took place, where he was betrayed, <laughs> killed, harrowed, and then resurrected. And now uh, today, but resurrected sans his unholy spirit, if you will, a Bob. We don't know. This episode did not really touch on um, the mystery of who is Dirty Cooper without Bob living inside him, presuming that Bob is definitely now separate from him. So yes, we encounter him walking along this road en route to the farm. He finds a red bandana um, that signals that this is where he's supposed to go. Just seeing him walk down this road, I mean, it was just so bright on the road. Yes. And, he, you know, everything he was wearing was just, you know, besides the fact that he was he's wearing his sort of, you know, perpetual, like, you know, leather tanned uniform, you know, just he seemed so dark and so muddy and so bloody and so dusty. And there was just, there was just an interesting effect for a character who's been so malevolent for so long. Um, and then, you know, to go from that into his meeting with the Hutchins couple. It was interesting because, again, like, you know, we first met Chantel way back in the season premiere. It, it was established then that Dirty Cooper needed her and her husband to be somewhere in a couple days. So, again, we're we're getting these nice little minor mystery solutions to things you maybe didn't even realize were mysteries the first time around. He meets up with them. It turns out that Jennifer Jason Lee's husband is played by Tim Roth, which I thought was just such a delight 
delightful bit of casting. Uh, both of them were in The Hateful Eight, and I definitely felt as if we're meant to feel some amount of sort of Tarantino-esque cool assassin-ness to this couple. It's almost kind of like if Tim Roth's character from Pulp Fiction and Jennifer Jason Lee's character from like Miami Blues had sort of you know gotten together and gone on a never-ending rampage of terror across the country. Just so much great stuff. I, I loved how like this couple just seemed to be the real like you know Swiss Army knife assistants for Dirty Cooper. Like you know you need a new car, we got you that. New guns, we got you that. He assigned them like one assassination and then was already prepping them for another assassination. Um, you know on one hand he's sending them to sort of mop up what's left of the stuff at Yankton, sending them to kill the warden. And I believe he said, quote, kill him at home, at work, or on the way, which I thought was just a nice little, like, you know, like, you can figure it out. You have you have, you have three options, all of them good. And Cooper also seemed to be kind of pointing them in the direction of Las Vegas, which I thought was, you know, interesting. I feel like I've said this in, like, three straight episodes of our podcast now, but things are really converging in Las Vegas now, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love the, the little wordplay observation that you made in your recap, the conspicuous phrase double header that Dirty Cooper uses in this scene. I got a double header for you in Vegas, uh, which, which seems to allude to a lot of things in, in Twin Peaks in general, but just like, you know, the double Coopers, the electrical uh, outlets with the double outlets double-mindedness, like uh, like the, the doubling of everything. Double, double, double. But uh, <laughs> I, I like that kind of stuff. I like how the, the very strategic use of words in this show to capture your imagination. But yeah, I was immediately uh, captured by Tim Roth and Jennifer Jason Lee as this couple. Uh, you know, uh, t- I haven't seen, I think, Tim Roth. I, I haven't seen The Hateful Eight, True Confession. But um, Jeff, it's a mere four and a half hours long, so I'm surprised <laughs> you haven't made time for that yet. I I, I do like the movie a lot, but I, I, I don't begrudge anyone who hasn't seen it. It's like three straight hours of people talking in a room. So it's not the most like, it's not what you're jumping to do on a Saturday night. <laughs> the last thing I, I think I really associate Tim Roth with is that um, that TV show he did on Fox called Lie to Me. So the, the, the juxtaposition between him doing this, uh, you know, basically in Lie to Me, this 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 straight up kind of Tim Rothy procedural with with not much acting or characterization to move into this role this sort of like you know very scuzzy drifter criminal guy real character actor performance reminds me once again that Tim Roth is just a very good actor and yeah but you you mentioned how both of them had a Tarantino-esque vibe but we also remember that before Tarantino was doing Tarantino, Lynch was doing Tarantino. <laughs> and and, and the, the immediate reference I got from this scuzzy pair was Wild at Heart. And the assassins that are played by, uh, there's a group of assassins that go after Harry Dean Stanton's character, one of them played by Grace Zabriskie. And they too weren't just killers, but they were sinister, sadistic torturers who liked to play with their food before they ate it. And so I kind of thought that there, there was a little bit of of an evocation of, of that too. But that was a really kind of great little scene. You know, Dirty Cooper getting one of those like clean phones, sending that cryptic text 
text to, we would later find out, Diane. We'll have to unpack that in a minute, what's going on between him and Diane. The dialogue of that scene, I love the little coded words that Lynch Frost have for various things, specifically like guns or weapons, puppies and biscuits. Um, I'll get you some puppies and biscuits, which I think was code for either phones and guns. Like Dirty Cooper getting a bag of che- of Cheetos <laughs> for the road, you know, saddling up in his big Silverado truck, like you know, from a scene out of a western, as he's gonna, you know, this this dark cowboy riding off. The thing that struck me from a character perspective is. And something that I'm thinking about with Dirty Cooper right now is this guy who made a big show of wanting and not needing and not trusting his own cohorts, but obviously kind of relying on them on something or playing them for something. I would dare say that this was almost the most human that we've seen Dirty Cooper this year. I mean, like his obvious affection for, there seems to be some kind of palpable affection between him and Chantal. He's got two friends here, if you will. He really does need to eat. He'll even eat junk food, which doesn't surprise me, this embodiment of evil eating junk food. But (laughs) the, 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 the question of of who is Dirty Cooper without this evil spirit living within him. That's something I'm kind of watching out for in the weeks to come, like how his characterization may shift or if not shift at all. And philosophically, kind of what we're talking about here, a man without a soul and this sort of developing, you know, symbols pointing us in the direction of certain philosophies that deal with who are we? Are we just animal? Are we just matter? Is there spirit? Are we integrated? Are the whole notions of dualism, mind and body, all these things. So stuff that's probably better suited for like, you know, long ponderous recaps like the ones I write. But I'm interested in how all of these ideas are encoded in this sort of very strange pulp story of Twin Peaks. I'm interested in that, but but Jeff, you've also gotten me interested now in something else, because if these two assassins, who, as you said, are kind of coded to be wild at heart, are in fact going to the desert to get Kyle McLaughlin, it'll finally be the wild at heart Dune crossover that Lynch fans have been waiting for for such a long time. Two, like, two films in the Lynch canon that you, you don't often see talked about in the same sentence, but uh, hopefully we'll get to do that sometime soon. Um, Jeff, let's uh, hang out in South Dakota. Dakota, but perhaps move towards East South Dakota. Uh, as we mentioned, a lot of convergences here. Gordon Cole and the FBI gang are flying home inside of Gordon Cole's wonderfully 70s style wood paneled private jet. Um, he gets he gets two phone calls, one from Colonel Davis sending him to Buckhorn and one from the warden at Yankton telling him that, quote, Cooper flew the coop. Just, just great, great, great dialogue all over this hour of television um I, I just thought i mean the buckhorn of this season which was such a huge part of part one and maybe at the time when we assumed a show about twin peaks would be largely set in twin peaks was one of the more confusing elements we've talked about this i got so much love in my heart for buckhorn and i just felt like the sequences set there in this episode were so wonderful um you know you kind of mentioned this but upon first arrival 
driving in the Buckhorn Police Department. There was that kind of interesting moment where Diane says, you know, I actually would prefer not to go in. I mean, again, like, I'm sort of an, I'm just sort of a citizen. I'm not sure why you keep bringing me to these, like, haunted <laughs> places filled with law enforcement personnel who I definitely don't like. But, you know, we, we, we sort of left her in the waiting room, and that's when we saw that she had gotten a text message. And it was indeed the text message that Dirty Cooper had sent earlier. And the text message said, around the dinner table, the conversation is lively. What was your kind of feeling about that, Jeff? I kind of, in my recap, you know, had put forward the notion that, you know, it was from an unknown number, so she might not have any reaction to it necessarily. But it did seem to me as if, it was interesting that the show picked up this sort of dark Cooper and Diane uh, dynamic, which was such a horrifying part of their meeting earlier in the season. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about the significance of that scene, maybe because I, I don't want Diane to be dirty, if you will. This sort of this implication that the suggestion now that she, yeah, we definitely know or we've been led to believe that she had some dark past event with Dirty Cooper many years ago, shortly after Dirty Cooper left the Black Lodge and, and, and began his reign of terror and evil in the world. And that, that great scene a couple weeks ago where there was that confrontation between them where you really got the sense that she was confronting her abuser. And that was super powerful. Now we're kind of made to wonder how legit that scene was if they were speaking in code, if Diane is in league with Dirty Cooper, if maybe that scene now a couple weeks ago was a performance, if you will, that was coded with unspoken information, essentially Diane telling Dirty Cooper, I am where you need me to be and I'm in play and everything's going according to plan. Of course, both things can be true. There might have been something sinister and evil that happened, um, you know, that Dirty Cooper did to her back in the day, but she owns him too. So I I don't really have a, a lot of theories about what that secret message meant. And it's entirely possible, as you said, that she thinks that she's getting it from someone else. So, for example, you might wonder given the ongoing awareness and uh, the whole Agent Jeffries of this season, Agent Jeffries being in play, and we know that Dirty Cooper um, has something to do with Agent Jeffries. We might wonder if Diane has some alliances with some other people and Dirty Cooper has hijacked those and is manipulating her. So a lot of things yeah. are in play. Like, is, is is Diane an agent of Dirty Cooper? If so, I don't know if I like that idea because how it uh, reframes things in the past and then therefore retroactively maybe diminishes some of the power of the things of the past. Although, who knows, maybe it will enhance them. Obviously, there is more to Diana than, Diane than meets the eye. And, you know, she presents herself to Cole and Albert as sort of being living off the grid and having nothing to do with the FBI, having nothing to do with Cooper. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe over the years, she's been in contact with other people um, that are invested in investigating the blue rose of it all. So yeah, it was it was baffling. 
And I have no theory other than just to share my reaction to it, which was this mixed feeling about whether or not she's actually an, uh, an agent of Dirty Cooper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But my my only sort of reactions to it were, on one hand, maybe just because I love Laura Dern so much, I'm kind of biased to believe that she's not working for him, that in fact what is being teased here is some future reckoning. I mean, you know, we've talked about, and in going back and rewatching part one, it really struck me that, you know, Laura Palmer's appearance seemed to connote this incredible amount of vengeful energy, or at least this, this spirit that Laura Palmer, who when we when we had past seen her inside of the Red Room, seemed somewhat at peace, that spirit was gone. And I was wondering if we're meant to glean that there is some greater reckoning to be happening in this season with more people than just Laura Palmer. If, you know, Diane, who, you know, I could have totally believed that the scene of her a few weeks ago meeting uh, Dirty Cooper, I could have believed that was the end of her on the show. Interesting, to, you know, to me, this was like a little bit of trail of breadcrumbs pointing forward to something else there. I, I was also just kind of wondering, frankly, if like, ah, oh, like maybe like on top of every other awful thing Dirty Cooper does, he's just kind of a troll, you know? He just like texts people at random from like burner phones. Like, you know, <laughs> how many how many more awful character traits can a single person have? Well, one quick thought on that. And one more thought about Diane too. I think you're onto something there. I mean, maybe when Dirty, when you come into... Dirty Cooper's sphere of influence. He not only, you know, like does bad stuff to you, uses you and abuses you, whatever, but you you, you become maybe through some dark magic or mind control or something, maybe he radiates a, a kind of mesmerizing hum, not unlike the hum heard in, in the Great Northern these days. Um, <laughs> but, but you're owned by him. You know, you're yeah. in his thrall, whether you want to be or not. Um, so you have to do his bidding. And you might try to do anything in your power to get out of it. Um, you might accept contracts to assassinate him. <laughs> but regardless, uh, you, you have to do it. One other thought about Diane, that great scene between Cole, uh, Tammy, and Diane outside smoking the cigarette, and that long static shot of watching Gordon Cole just eyeball her cigarette then look to Diane, look at the cigarette, look to Diane, a little wary look to Tammy, back to the cigarette, back to Diane's eyes, back and forth, back and forth. The, the temptation of Gordon Cole to he'll fall off the horse and smoke a cigarette again was just really funny, as you noted in your recap, sort of like, uh, full of the knowingness of watching a director and a longtime collaborator uh, in Laura Dern kind of enjoying each other's company and performing a scene together. I, I wouldn't say it was the best acting that either of them have ever done, but I still like the comedy of it all. Oh, but, yeah. But there's an aspect to that scene that Lynch does so well and maybe did it has done it better than any other episode this season that long take comedy where he just has this this instinct for timing how long a scene should play out how it should unfold what are the multi act beats in that kind of like really silent observational comedy it's just so good and the confidence that you have to have as a filmmaker 
to shoot that scene and edit that scene and let it play out and trust that it works. There were moments in this episode early on where I really thought that it was sort of like running in place, stalling. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Especially uh-huh. all of the scenes on the plane where like Gordon Cole's walking back and forth, getting like like booze bottles for Diane and, and all that. All these little transitional moments and stuff like that, that any director would just sort of cut away and let you pretend that like, you know, fill in the blanks of, of, of what Cole's doing. Like, no, Lynch shows that stuff to you. And he also shows these like these long takes of just conversation or silence or all of that. And they all work. By the end of the hour, like I went from the beginning of the hour thinking like, oh, is is this sort of like a transitional running in place episode where, you know, a spacer episode and a larger narrative that he's building. And then by the end, I kind of felt like, no, this is overflowing with so much stuff. Stuff seemed to happen, which is a really ironic thing when you have an episode in which you just have long takes where maybe things don't seem to happen, whether it's, you know, three people in a stairwell, like, you know, thinking about smoking a cigarette to Jerry Horn in the forest, like playing with his foot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It just, and and, you know, as I kind of go off on a little tangent here, it reminds me of something that Christopher Nolan once said about the greatness of Stanley Kubrick, another director who kind of practices very long take static shots that just give you an image or something that is just playing out slowly or subtly right before your eyes. And he talked about how modern directors don't do that. And they they don't do that for any number of reasons because of just sort of like conventional commercial editing styles of creating energy and action or whatever. But he also said that just artists don't have confidence in their image making, right? That you need this boldness of confidence to say this image and this image only and this lockdown shot and this this is all I need. I don't need to cut around and do a lot of coverage to create energy or get all possible angles to make you feel something. I'm going to trust in this image. I'm going to trust in my actors. And I'm just, you need a lot of confidence And that's a hallmark of our great directors. And this was an episode exuding storytelling confidence and Lynch's trust in his own style. Yeah, I mean, like that that shot was over two minutes long. And I mean, like, you know, and and, and to me, what's interesting is like, you know, as you said, Jeff, it's not the sort of long take that can be fun, but that we tend to see more often now. The sort of like, you know, long moving uh, children of men, how many things can happen in one kind of steady cab shot kind of take. It is just like three people standing on a stairwell. And I would even add what's interesting about it is it's this weird combination of feeling very authentic and very artificial. I mean, like, you know, Krista Bell as a performer, I mean, she's not necessarily, you know, she certainly is not trained as an actress to the extent that, you know, the great Laura Dern is. David Lynch himself, certainly not a performer in the classic sense. And you have this interesting sort of, like, trio there where, like, you know, Laura Dern is just, like, you know, really kind of underplaying it and hardly even moving. And Krista Bell, I mean, she does, like, ten different poses over the course of two (laughs) minutes. It's so fascinating. I'm but yeah, loved that shot. Um, 
while we're sticking around Buckhorn, though, as much as I love, love, loved that shot, the greatest moment of this season was when <laughs> Detective Mackley was getting everyone caught up on the doings in Buckhorn. It was almost sort of a, like, previously on, mixed with, like, stuff you've missed while you weren't in Buckhorn. We heard again about Bill Hastings, the affair with a librarian. We heard about how they found Major Briggs's headless body. We, we got confirmation that the lawyer uh, who... D- Dirty Cooper framed for the murder of William Hastings' wife is in custody. We heard that Hastings' secretary, who I guess we're just never going to name, she's just Hastings' secretary, uh, she has died in a mysterious car explosion. To all of which, Albert just sort of turned to him and said, what happens in season two? <laughs> that was great. That was that oh, was so God. funny. Like that, Miguel, that great little meta moment there. Oh man, oh, yeah. God, I mean, like Miguel Ferrer. I just, I, I, I laugh and I cry every, every time. It's just so wonderful having him. And Jeff, you'd appreciated this because one of your favorite characters is Constance. How great is yeah. it that Albert and Constance had a little moment in, in this episode? Oh, the, the flirtation of Constance and Albert is one of my favorite things. By the way, that little moment of. Back to like, we're just going to talk about Cole, Diane, and and Tammy smoking in a stairwell all this episode. (laughs) But the reason why they went outside to smoke a cigarette is is that, you know, Albert was inside. I forget exactly what Cole said, but Albert needed a moment or he was doing some work, presumably, you know, given his role as the CSI guy in the FBI, presumably he was looking at the body and working some more with Constance. But I kind of kind of wondered if maybe he and Constance were like, maybe, I don't know, acting on their attraction. Something that I, I, I think that Gordon Cole could really appreciate because you get the sense that he's had uh, lots of intimate friendships with female colleagues over the years. So <laughs> I kind of wanted, but yeah, that, that was this great little thing. L- little uh, postscript there. When, when Mackley was sort of giving the sort of like previously on and summing up everything that had happened with the case in Buckhorn. Yeah, I love that little detail that, well, two little details, essentially, that he sneaks in there, um, stuff that we haven't seen, but updates. Yeah, George has been arrested, and the secretary has been blown up in a car, which is, who is, by the way, and a mistake that I've been making all season in my recaps, Ruth Davenport is a librarian, not Bill Hastings' secretary. That is someone completely different altogether. But I believe his assistant, Bill mentions in, 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 in his debrief, and I believe episode two, that he has an assistant named Betty. So I'm wondering if the secretary's name is Betty. And I'm wondering... Let's use this as an awkward segue into what we learned from Bill, because we, we learned a lot from Bill in yes. this episode. But I'm now suddenly confused about something that I thought I was just clear on. So he had a relationship with Ruth Davenport, who was the librarian. He has this assistant or secretary. Let's call her Betty. Were they all working on the blog together? 
Okay, so I believe so. So this was actually, I would almost say, the most important piece of information that we received about Bill Hastings. Not sure how this didn't come up the first time we met him when we did learn, you know, we we learned a lot more about the fact that the Morgans were coming for dinner than we did about (laughs) this, like, hugely important aspect of his personality. He is a seeker in, like, the classic Twin Peaks mode. He has a uh, website or blog, as I believe Tammy Preston referred to it called the search for the zone.com a blog or an online journal hopefully <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what it was but oh yes, my please, God. please continue the search for the zone.com which is an actual website you could go you could find stuff tell us about it darren well if you go to the website you kind of click around you find out that he's a big fan of robert heinlein uh, which, you know, we can maybe, like, talk separately about some potential Heinlein uh, comparison points here. Cat Who Walks Through Walls seems like a definite uh, classic entry in the sort of alternate realities well- realm. But that's what it's all about. It's all about the search for an alternate reality, a different dimension, which... Bill assures us, as he's being interrogated by Tammy, is real. Because what we discover is that Bill and Ruth, and I think the secretary too, unclear. Actually, maybe it was just Bill and Ruth and the secretary was running information for them. Let's put a pin in that right now. They went to this alternate dimension. And when they went to this alternate dimension, as he apparently actually wrote on his online journal, they met the major. It emerged... That previous to the tragic death of Ruth Davenport, they had discovered what I believe he said were hidden records. There was the implication that Ruth was, quote, very good at uncovering hidden records, which I think might mean that she's a hacker. Certainly there was a bit of hacking that that did happen at some later point. It emerged that if they went to a certain place at a certain time, we would enter the dimension and make contact with a certain person. Again, you might think about like Glastonbury Grove and this idea of like there are certain places within the world where you can access other worlds when they met the major the major said that he was hibernating and that other people were going to try to find him the major asked them to get some coordinates they got the coordinates from a secured military database what i'm telling you is just what bill told us in an incredible (laughs) sort of extended bit of exposition uh by uh, matthew lillard and then Something really weird happened, and I, I kind of rewatched this. I, I'd recommend everybody, if you're ever confused about something that's happening on Twin Peaks, just go back to that scene and turn the closed captioning on, and like it usually makes it about 50% more understandable. Yeah, yeah. They went back to this dimension, Jeff. They gave Major Briggs the coordinates, and then there were others there who pushed Bill down and asked him what his wife's name was. Either before, after, or during that, they had given Major Briggs the coordinates. And I believe the exact sequence of events was they gave him the numbers. Major Briggs started to float up. He said the words, Cooper, Cooper, and his head disappeared. (laughs) And then Bill Hastings wakes up in his home. Next thing he knows, Ruth Davenport is dead. Major Briggs' body is there, head missing. This was all kind of just done him sort of like describing this to us. 
in an interrogation room. It's He almost seemed to me like he was a Twin Peaks recapper trying to explain a sequence from Firewalk <laughs> with me or something. You know, like, I think I, I think I texted this to you. There was an element where, where I was kind of like, oh, this is this is sort of like the in-universe version of, of Doc Jensen. Like, he's experienced <laughs> something and, like, now he needs now he needs to sort of, like, you know, take some time to sort of analyze it. But well, what was your sort of interpretation of all that, Jeff? It, it seems as if, like, you know, th- there are chords that were struck there, but I was very struck by, you know, him sort of saying it was something no one has ever seen before. It, it almost, like, made me wonder if that was a code for, like, whatever you think this might relate to, it's something else entirely. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that, well, first of all, let's just say great scene for Matthew Lillard. Like, and th- his whole performance of that, one of the acting MVPs of this season so far. And the way that he rocked that whole thing was from, from his opening to, oh, God, the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> like his whole like uh, uh, just sad requiem, his his own personal threnody, <laughs> his act of wailing for the loss of his beloved mistress Ruth. Like they were gonna go to the Bahamas, they were gonna oh soak up the God. sun. I want to go scuba diving. <laughs> um, I mean, like it was so. Like sad and pitiful and oddly funny, but also just so so genuinely moving. We were gonna scuba dive we and drink mixed drinks on the beach. Oh god. Oh my god, it was so tragic. But about the mythology of it all, yeah, like one question that I'm really asking in light of some other things that we're gonna talk about here in a minute about the things that was found in Twin Peaks is This was an episode in which there was a correspondence and synchronicity between revelations of secret information, all pertaining to Black Lodge magic, if you will. You know, from what we have here with Major Briggs to some really interesting insight into Dougie Jones uh, in terms of when he was created and made to some secrets uh, that Major Briggs was hiding essentially in in Twin Peaks, including a secret location. So the question I have about the zone, where is the zone? Is the zone, was Major Briggs hiding slash hibernating in say that, you know, space station in the void that sent Agent Cooper back to Earth through the electrical socket? Or could it be the White Lodge? Um, I, I don't think it's the White Lodge, but I did wonder if maybe that we're, we're thinking too cosmic so far, that, that maybe he was hiding slash hibernating somewhere terrestrial, somewhere mm-hmm. on Earth, but at the same time, strange, magical, and hidden away. So it could be that private place, that magical place that he made with Bobby Briggs in the woods back in the day that they're about to go to in a couple days in Twin Peaks. I almost wondered if if, if this was a reference to whatever is happening in New York and what was being built in New York and that, um, that, that glass box, if maybe he was hidden away there or something. Um, I do want to say that that the whole imagery that we were described, I guess that was my long way of saying a lot of possibilities. I don't know. Where is the zone? I would like to know (laughs) Um, where he was hibernating. But the imagery that we were given um, was imagery that we've seen before on the show. Um, The whole idea of Major Briggs levitating and then losing his head 
Well, we saw that in the woodsman in the second episode of this season, sharing that cell down the way from Bill where he was in that contorted pose and then he disappeared. But what you saw was his head alone, the specter of his head floating to the sky like a released balloon. Or even last week's episode where the giant or Mr. Question Marks levitated up and then kind of, you know, um, barfed up all those golden particles. So I'm wondering if the this sort of imagery that Lynch gives us um, is meant to be clues to, to help understand what happened. So i.e. like, yeah, the people that rushed in and held Bill down and, and, and tortured him and asked for his wife's name, were they woodsmen? Was Major Briggs trying to ascend and levitate into uh, the White Lodge uh, where Mr. Question Marks resides? The other thing that I would just say about this whole scene is, is that it kind of echoes back to something that Bill told his wife when he, he insisted that like he didn't kill Ruth. He wasn't in that apartment. It was all a dream. And you kind of wondered what exactly they did. Like if we're, t- if we're getting the whole story exactly of like how they got into the zone. Yeah. They got coordinates. Yeah. They went to a place, but look, did they have to light up some of Jerry's, like, you know, <laughs> a hydroponic altered states, uh, a pot to get there? Did they have to fall asleep and enter it through a dream? Those are also other questions I'm asking. Yeah. About Jeff, this. don't forget, we still don't know how Harvey factors into all of this. You remember Harvey, right? Harvey's the guy who, like, Hank was calling on the phone. Like, there's there's still a lot more in Buckhorn that is very oh, yeah, unclear yeah, yeah. to me. We still don't know about Harvey. Is Eddie Vedder playing Harvey? We just don't know. <laughs> well, if all of our if our listeners are confused about Harvey, yeah, I mean, what what we're referring to is, and and I agree with you. There is something that you know when we first recapped part one of Twin Peaks, and when I wrote about that, we talked about. Um, Marjorie, Marjorie Green, uh, with her little dog Armstrong, they were the ones that uh, that live in that apartment building where Ruth lived and smelled that awful smell coming from Ruth's apartment, then called the cops. And then during that whole scene in which the cops come over, we we are given just a, a sort of bewildering and confusing bunch of names and relationships that like you had to keep a scorecard to follow and yeah like there's a manager then he has a name and there's a handyman and he has a name but the handyman (laughs) has a brother but then the brother like has an associate and then there's a guy named harvey and when when the cops show up the handyman who was apparently looting the place I think his name was Chip. No, I don't know if he was Chip. He was Hank. He was, he was Hank. 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 Yeah. Chip, I think, is the brother of. The, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So Hank, who works at the building but was looting the building, uh, when he sees the cops show up, he goes Harvey. He thinks that Harvey's shown up, and then he realizes that the cops are not Harvey. And then later on, as you note, he has that scene where he's on the phone with someone named Harvey. All of which that intimates that there is someone dirty, like Harvey is apparently maybe a police officer. And although what he said was Harvey didn't want in, I can't believe that we're going on a segue on Harvey in this podcast, but like (laughs) Harvey didn't want in on the job that Hank was doing in the building. And so maybe it's possible that Harvey is not a cop, but rather 
like Hank just kind of assumed that this associate that didn't went in on the job kind of ratted out his partners. But I thought the clear intimation was is that was that Harvey was a cop and there is a dirty cop in Buckhorn. A long tangent to say, I agree with your point that there might be more going on in Buckhorn than we've yet seen. <laughs> well, let's depart Buckhorn for now. I don't want to spend too long in Las Vegas just because there's a lot more to dig into in Twin Peaks, but I was really pleased to see the return of the detectives Fusco, who are already like some of my new favorite kind of supporting characters on the show. Uh, they continue their, their investigation onwards from the Dougie versus Ike the Spike battle that we saw saw a couple hours ago. You had sort of mentioned this, Jeff, the, the, the main intriguing sort of larger plot level stuff we got out of this sequence was in their conversation with Bushnell Mullins. It emerged that Dougie had worked for Bushnell for about 12 years. Bushnell said he'd had some sort of car accident previously and that I'm forgetting his exact phrasing of it, but basically that like Dougie seems to have had spells where that car accident would sort of, you know, you would know that there was something off about him. This seems to explain why people have been sort of not necessarily surprised that Dougie is a little bit off. Um, And then, of course, the Fusco brothers discovered that indeed, previous to 1997, there was no uh, reference for any Douglas Jones, no no driver's license, no passport, no social security number. So they they sort of began their investigation into that. And you know what you were saying about CSI Twin Peaks really resonated here. There was a little bit of business with a coffee mug. How dare they use a coffee mug to get someone's fingerprints? By the way, that's almost. <laughs> That, again, within the context of Twin Peaks, where coffee equals like you know the body and blood of some higher <laughs> like being, like using coffee for skullduggery is just not allowed. Um, but you know we can imagine that those fingerprints will pop up and cause a stir throughout the world of, of Twin Peaks. Um, but you know this was just a lot of lot of fun in this sequence. I thought uh, with the brothers and, and with the, with the investigation and everything. Uh, what kind of jumped out at you from the Vegas of uh, Part Nine, Jeff? Yeah, the comedy with the Fusco brothers, just great. I liked how they were like, they're not just sort of like idiot comic relief trio of Keystone cops. They actually seem to be pretty good at their jobs, I thought. Like, I like how they mess with Bushnell, but appropriately. I mean, like, you got the sense that Bushnell is now activated to start solving the mystery of Dougie Jones, too. But, you know, they aren't necessarily going to facilitate that. Like, you know, they're not going to give him any information. I love that once Bushnell is safely away from earshot, then they just all of a sudden lapse into into detective mode and start exchanging information and processing everything. The great sense of humor between them, like, I really hope that that back tail light really is worth the 237 some odd dollars that was spent on it. Um, So we are starting to get a little bit more backstory on Dougie. He has been known to have these lapses where he's kind of really spaced out. It made me wonder if that is just a side effect of being this manufactured golem creature made by Dirty Cooper or if it's possible that during those periods of being spaced out, he falls under the control of Dirty Cooper and maybe even inhabited by Dirty Cooper. Uh, maybe Dirty Cooper used him as a vehicle of sorts to, to accomplish some things in Vegas. 
Just a side note, 1997, there was no Dougie before 1997. 1997 was the year that uh, Lynch uh, released the film Lost Highway, which is also a story of doppelgangers and reincarnation and bad guys trying to elude capture through very metaphysical and supernatural means. Um, So I thought that was maybe an interesting association. The other thing that obviously jumped out to me was the oddly beautiful and moving scene of Agent Cooper, uh, his attention gripped by uh, that American flag standing lonely and sentinel and draped in a corner. And he just is like looking at it and he's oddly moved by it, maybe confused by it. And, and is starting to hear America the beautiful and a, a reflective moment that asks us, what does the flag mean to us these days, Darren? Um, fill in the blanks for yourself, do your own thinking on that. But I thought that was a, a, another example, obviously, of Agent Cooper encountering archetypes, iconic archetypes that speak to his own identity, his own Agent Cooperness that might be stirring something with inside him to recover the entirety of his Agent Cooper mind. And so his journey toward enlightenment and, and fully integrated Cooperness continues. Uh, yes, that whole scene, so beautiful, American flag, blonde woman in red shoes, electrical conduit. It was like just everything I love about Lynch all just mashed into one perfect sequence and uh, was so, so lovely. Um, before we leave Vegas, Jeff, just want to quickly point out, Ike the Spike fucked himself, it turns out. <laughs> Ike. Ike. Yeah, the, the one thing I will say about Ike the Spike is Lynch does this. Everything is either weirder than it is or not as weird as you think it is. So Ike the Spike, in this case, is like, was he some supernatural agent of the Black Lodge? Like, no, he's just kind of like, I'm sorry for the horrible pun here, but just a low life a little assassin who has been well known to the people of of the cops for for many many years and he tries to escape that the cops corner him capture him and and he just gives up he goes out like a chump you know and like <laughs> and and like he drops his thing he puts his hands up and lynch kind of slowly zooms in on him and it gives him a comical sound effect gulp or no 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 not gulp a groan a groan if you if if you watch you he, he makes this little sound and if you if you watch it on closed captioning the the captioning for it is groaning that's a just it's parenthetical groaning oh my god i mean just just oh god just full r- really like f- full credit to uh, the actor's name i believe is a christoph Zayek or Zajak uh, Denek. I'm sorry for, for butchering that. His... You might as well not have a name after that, Darren. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm so sorry. You were Ike the Spike forever. His line reading of that groan was great, but also, <laughs> I, I believe he was phoning Duncan Todd, the, the guy who, who had hired him for this, who who we discovered this episode, by the way, unequivocally working with Dirty Cooper, if, yeah. if we didn't already know that. Um, he's, he gave him a message and he said, here's the message. No cigar, taking medical leave. And I just thought that was wonderful. I want to leave that message for our bosses someday. Um, 
But uh, Jeff, the show is called Twin Peaks. Let's go to Twin Peaks. As much as I am a Major Briggs fanboy, I think it's fair to say that you were something of a Bobby Briggs fanboy. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure you were super stoked about this episode's uh, the, the care and attention that was given to the whole Briggs family. Um, do you want to kind of walk us through? Uh, Bobby went to his mom's house in this episode. Yeah, Bobby uh, w- went to his mom's house. He brought uh, Sheriff Truman, Frank Truman, and Hawk to his mom's house. So they have been puzzling over the fact over the past several weeks that a thing that's always been on their mind is their awareness and knowledge that Cooper met with Major Briggs before he left town. And Bobby told Frank Truman and Andy that uh, several episodes when we first saw Bobby. So now they're obviously following up that lead by going to speak with Mrs. Briggs about that night. So... Bobby brings uh, Frank and and Hawk to uh, visit his mom, and they're about to explain what they want from her when she raises her hand and says, stop, like, I know what this is all about. I knew this day would come. (laughs) And she relays a story in which the last time that she saw her husband, Major Briggs explained that one day, Bobby, Sheriff Truman, and Hawk would show up and ask about Agent Cooper. Now, she didn't know back in the day that this the Sheriff Truman would be Frank Truman, but regardless, <laughs> this is a fulfillment of prophecy. So it really is Dune, Darren. I mean, we have this like <laughs> massive saga of all these different planets, different cities, all these different groups of people with competing and different agendas. They're obviously all going to converge on the Arrakis of Twin Peaks, which is Twin Peaks, <laughs> which is the source of life, but also under peril from dark forces, right? But within all these worldly conspiracies, everyone is subordinate now to cosmic conspiracies and prophecies, and Major Biggs is one of the these prophets. So yes, now, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. As she says, hey, when this moment was supposed to arrive, I'm supposed to give you something. She goes to a red chair. This is the chair. This is the title of our episode. And there is a secret lever. I like the idea that this chair might have been in the Briggs household for like 25 years. People have sat in it. Bobby sat in it. He's probably had some girlfriends over. They made out on the chair. I'm just now making up a whole history for the chair. Um, But anyway, there is this red chair and it has this secret button at the, like somewhere on the leg. She activates the, the button and this little compartment pops up on the top of the chair and out, she withdraws a tube, a seemingly like, you know, seamless, perfect metal tube, and she gives it to them and they drink coffee. Now, throughout all of this scene and into the next, Bobby Briggs and Dana Ashbrook is doing some really great acting with very few scenes and very strange scenes, you know? And just the the feeling that he's generating in these moments where he is hearing from his mom, like the faith that his father had in him, that this whole fulfillment of prophecy isn't just a 
step in like the direction to retrieving Cooper and solving the problem of evil bedeviling all of Twin Peaks and writing cosmic balances, whatever. But but for, for this family, for the Briggs family, it also represents a sort of like happy ending, if you will, of Bobby, a troubled kid who was involved in drugs, who killed a man in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, uh, that he was all going to turn out all right. We could still wonder if maybe Bobby isn't going to be all right. There is a popular theory out there that he is involved in the secret drug running scandal, uh, 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 conspiracy, that he's dirty himself. But regardless, in this moment at least, him reacting to all of these things about like that his father had faith in him, that he would turn out okay, and that the fulfillment of this prophecy that he would be here with these law enforcement agents following up on Agent Cooper was part of a proof of that. So they get this this, this canister, and they go back to the sheriff's department. Uh, they breeze past a Lucy who makes a big show of saying that she's on her lunch break, but no one really cares about your lunch break, Lucy. Um, <laughs> they go into the conference room where Chad is having his lunch break, but he is not supposed to be eating his stinky lunch and reading his guns and ammo magazine in the police conference room. So they ask him to leave and he, he piles all his stuff up on his magazine and awkwardly tries to get out in one of these long take pieces of comedy. No one tries to help him like open the door to get him out faster because no one likes Chad. You know, it's just like, so they're just going to like let Chad suffer and struggle and make him ask for help, which he does. <laughs> Hawk opens the door. He leaves. They quickly take positions. Frank asks Bobby to crack a window because that whatever he was eating was probably really smelly. Maybe creamed corn. Who knows? Um, Gar- so- Garmon <laughs> boozy. Yeah. <laughs> right. So they try to like solve this puzzle. It's a puzzle. It's one of these puzzle tubes, puzzle games, how to crack open this thing. Frank, Hawk are like, like, we don't understand puzzles. We could barely solve the one that we have, uh, that we've been trying to solve all season. But Bobby Briggs, standing by the open window where bad smell is wafting out, just starts cracking up uh, and says, I, I know that thing. My, my dad brought it home for me one day. I, I know how to open it, but we got to go back outside. Frank's like, you could have told us that sooner. You're having a laugh on us. Bobby's like, yeah, I know. And so they go back outside past uh, Lucy, who again says, hey, I'm, I'm making a say. I, I'm eating my lunch and they don't care. They go back outside. And apparently the key to to cracking the code of this canister, and this is what I love about this stuff, is that, like, again, like, it's, it's a symbol for if you think you could solve the mystery of Twin Peaks, don't try. Like, you can't. Have fun. Lynch wants you to have fun. Do it. Mark Frost wants you to have do it. But but literally, it's it's not a code to be cracked uh, like this thing, because there's just no way that you could have guessed that the key to unlocking this tube is hucking it hard on the ground to first get it ringing and emitting a mesmerizing tone, which everyone listens to, which I guess maybe activates some mechanisms, but it's a double tap kind of thing where you got to huck it hard on the ground again, which allows the the top to snap off. This is done. Uh, So they open up this tube and withdraw a tiny piece of paper, which they unfold. And Darren, can you describe to us what's on the paper? Well, first thing, Jeff, I have to say, watching this, watching this moment when they unfurled the paper that was inside of the little cylinder, 
I really thought to myself, like, wow, like, somewhere in time, young Jeff Jensen, it's like the (laughs) mid-90s, there is no Twin Peaks anywhere in the future, he's he's feeling sad, he's wondering, you know, will I ever get get to overthink this show again? I just want to send a message back in time via, like, you know, via via glowing face orb of Laura Palmer, like, like, don't worry, someday, Dana Ashbrook will be holding up a piece of paper with symbols and codes on it and all will be well with the world um, <laughs> yes yes uh, the, w- what they discovered was a little piece of paper w- with what seemed to be directions on it and the symbol that I I kind of call this just like the Twin Peaks symbol but it's it's the sort of triangles that we have seen it, it's not quite the Owl Cave symbol it is certainly so, some variation therein but uh, some interesting additions to that symbol with the two sort of mountains Mountain triangles in the middle. Over one mountain was a red circle. We can we can call this the sun, or perhaps it is the full moon. Over the other kind of mountain, perhaps more jarringly and shockingly, was the symbol that we saw on Mr. Cooper's playing card way back in the premiere. One listener uh, had kind of tweeted at us that there seems to be some interesting commonality between that image and the strange experiment figure. So, you know, we can interpret that perhaps these are two lodges, perhaps it's something else all, else altogether. The direction specifically said 253 yards east of Jackrabbit's Palace. Put some soil from that area in your pocket. There was a time, 253, and two dates, October 1st and October 2nd. 10 slash 1 and 10 slash 2, if there's some kind of double meaning there, which it seems is two days from now so we also got like a a nice little bit of date setting there uh, which I thought was kind of interesting what a feast Jeff what a feast of information we have here and again anchored by some uh, emotional stuff like that Bobby sort of delighting in all of these clues that that Major Briggs left behind but were left behind for him he was the only one that could figure out all of this stuff one of the clues on that piece of paper, Jack Rabbit Palace, was apparently a place that he and his dad built somewhere in the forest uh, near where Major Briggs's listening station was. It was a, a place where they went and they made up a whole magical world, which, which now makes me wonder if we're in a St. Elsewhere snow globe territory where the magical world that they created in this place is the magical world of Twin Peaks, or maybe even <laughs> the, the, the Black Lodge itself and all that mythology. But, but just without being kind of crazy speculative about it, just what all of this emotionally means for Bobby was very touching. And I love that Lynch looks out for that kind of stuff in his direction, in his actors. This could just have been a mythological download. No, it means something to these people. And it may get, that gets us invested in the story and in the characters. And that's great. Just one note, the number 253 is becoming an interesting reoccurring number and synchronicity in this uh, season of Twin Peaks. I believe, Darren, the 253, before Agent Cooper left the Black Lodge, the evolution of the arm, the brain tree, told Agent Cooper, remember this, 253. Oh, that's right! Yeah. And so when you listen to it, it actually sounds like he says 257, but the number that appears on the screen is 253. 
253 is also the time in which the Black Lodge attempted to extract uh, uh, Dirty Cooper from the world inside that aforementioned Lincoln. Um, woohoo! All of our references coming back to <laughs> we we earned the Lincoln deep dive. Um, so uh, so yeah, two five three was the time with that sort of cosmic correspondence and synchronicity between uh, trying to get a Dirty Cooper out of the world and Agent Cooper back into the world. So two fifty three or two five three seems to be a magic number. Um, and I would just note, without going down the deep research dive, we don't have time to get into my one of my favorite crazy thinkers, Arthur Kessler, who I've been boring you with in text over the past several weeks, Darren. But I would encourage all of the listeners to Google or find books called The Ghost in the Machine and The Roots of of Coincidence, which were both books that inspired albums by the police, specifically Synchronicity and these Jungian concepts of some kind of like collective subconscious and archetypal metaphysical world that actually, you know, influences and governs us all and actually manifests somehow in this world and explains things like coincidence or whatever. So I would just submit that maybe a lot of the far out ideas in this show are rooted in Kessler and that in an episode filled with police people and synchronicities, Darren, that those were all secret references to the roots of coincidence, which everyone should read because it would amuse me the thought of you all reading that book. Jeff, your texts are, are never boring. I love waking up to texts about the collective unconscious. That's exactly when my mind is operating at its most oversoul-related space. So uh, please never stop doing that. We did also have a one more piece of clue buried behind these sort of symbols and uh, directional coordinates, so to speak. A piece of paper that... I, I thought this this reminded me of the kind of listening post work that Major Garland Briggs was doing back in the original series. There may be some much smarter interpretation to be taken from all the kind of numbers and symbols that were on the piece of paper. But there were two repetitions of the word Cooper, which led, which led Hawk in what I thought was a really stunning jump to the exclamation, two Coopers. Um, but, you know, we'll kind of, we'll dig into that soon. Nice little bit of narrative signposting here. In two days, Sheriff Truman, Hawk, and Bobby Briggs are going to walk up to Jackrabbit's Palace. Given the way that time flies on this show, that might be next episode or it it might be the finale for all we know. But uh, great stuff in here. Let's just wrap up uh, the the doings in Twin Peaks, Jeff. This was a simultaneously horn-centric episode and yet still no Audrey Horn, which at this point just seemed incredibly tantalizing but we did you mentioned earlier hilarious check-in with jerry up in the woods and the voice of his foot saying i am not your foot i almost think we could go off the deep end here i want to just say i thought that was super funny but like did you have any other like huge thoughts about that sequence yeah a couple things one is i'm probably projecting something on this man but doesn't jerry look like a woodsman to you like, so, like, the whole visual archetype of the woodsman that we've been given this so far this season, these sort of like, you know, hoboish looking guys with beards and caps on, obviously, are woodsmen. Well, Jerry has been playing out like woodsman, sans, you know, 
sooty, oily skin and psychotic behaviors. Um, but he's certainly looking to light up all, all the time, it seems. Did you like that joke? I worked hard on I that got, one. I got it. I got it. Yeah. Um, so uh, sometimes the reason why I don't laugh is I'm worried that I might, uh, you know, impact y- your train of thought. But know that, know that I am truly, in our kind of Fusco Brothers dynamic, I am definitely the one who just laughs all the time all right. and says nothing useful. So. Thank you for humoring me and affirming me. I, I really needed that. But yes, so Jerry, like, as just a visually, that's the one thing. And even that little voice that was his, you know, I am, I am not your foot. Yes. Um, uh, but, but sounded a little bit like the evolution of the arms squeaky voice. So you definitely think that maybe this is all being played for laughs, but you, you do wonder if, if the visual motifs and, and the things that are being attached to him are going to lead somewhere. I mean, literally he's, you know, he's on this, he, he's a symbol for the show in some ways. He's on this journey meandering journey it's weird how is it all adding up i would say that his arc was strangely was very specifically presaged in his very first scene of the show where he's he's talking about his banana bread loaded with drugs but he talks about like it almost it again doubles as a a sort of commencement of the story. He kind of talked about he was about to go on a a creative journey of a solitary nature, and, <laughs> and, and that's what he's been on all season. So that was great. We also got some other crucial horn stuff too. If you were completely baffled by the moment in which a boy, an overgrown boy, a young man named Johnny, is just suddenly on the loose, running around his house as if escaped, and then runs full speed full sprint into a wall bludgeoning his own head maybe unconscious maybe dying being attended to by a woman that was poor johnny horn the uh, mentally impaired younger brother i believe i believe he was had, had some kind of mental illness i'm not sure uh, i forget but of audrey horn and a kind of like sad character int- reintroduction of him, like, you know, he's introduced to basically go nuts and then like well, run himself into a wall and then maybe die, rip um, um, Johnny Horn. We might note that the whole idea of people sort of losing their minds and then running into walls is a reoccurring motif in Twin Peaks, uh, you know, the way that, you know, Leland killed Maddie Ferguson in, in, in season two by just running her back her head right into a wall. I'm sending you back to Missoula, Montana. Um, and then, uh, uh, so um, there's that. I read some crazy theory online. Hats off to you because I love crazy theories. That w- was Johnny possessed by the mind of Leland Palmer? Or is this Ooh. evidence that Laura Palmer is trying to break into the heads of people? Yeah. Like, this tragedy of the Horn family was juxtaposed by another scene of seemingly spiritual triumph um, in which Benjamin Horn continued his search in his office uh, with, with, with his assistant Beverly for the strange sound that is emanating. And uh, they, they still can't find it, but they think it's the strongest in this sort of like dead space in the corner. Um, they find themselves once again in a corner in a clinch and they touch, they're tempted to follow through on what is some obviously some natural chemistry or attractions. And Ben says, no, I, I can't th- do this. I won't do this. And, and Beverly says, you're a good man. And, and Ben says, 
I can't do this. I don't know why. And I'm wondering if the answer is right before our eyes or at least in our ears, there's something maybe about this music maybe that is appealing to their spirit, you know, music being kind of like a realm of the spirit. And you kind of wondered if maybe it was having some kind of influence and prodding him toward the good and resisting his more animal nature. That kind of duality, I think, is very important to Twin Peaks. But it was kind of sad to think that as he was having this moment, negotiating this temptation and uh, overcoming it, that he has some tragedy waiting for him back at home. Or or maybe not so much of a tragedy, you might think it would be on his mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, well, did you think, Jeff, I mean, like, this, this is like a, a totally kind of left field idea. Um, you know, you were sort of wondering if we would get the kind of Twin Peaks get-together moment for the funeral of Detective Harry Truman. I was kind of wondering, I mean, if Johnny Horn is dead, is that going to be the big funeral get-together? Like, you know, is is, is that oddly going to be the spur for bringing out some of the cast members we haven't seen yet? That was my only sort of vaguely helpful idea. Besides the fact that I still do fervently believe that we'll find out later in the season that, like, Laura Palmer has kind of stepped into random people over the course of the show, and we, just, we have not been aware of it. Like, that's in idea that that I like a lot, but I do wonder if this is just sort of a sad postscript to the sad, strange life of Johnny Horn, which will now lead us into some some great Twin Peaks ensemble moment. That's kind of my kind of hope. We need something to hope for here, Jeff, as we we maybe mourn the sad passing of one of the uh, surprisingly lot of horns around Twin Peaks now, although they don't seem to hang out together too often. (laughs) And uh, just to wrap up quickly... Lucy and Andy uh, are buying a chair, which is interesting just because there was a chair talked about elsewhere in this episode. Not going to interpret what beige versus red might mean, but good to see that they have a functional marriage. And uh, last but not least, at the Roadhouse, uh, guest star, or I guess just star period, uh, Sky Ferreira, who's a great singer that everyone should check out. She appeared as yet another kind of lost seeming figure in Twin Peaks. She had an interesting conversation with another young lady um seemed like they were talking in code but maybe we just assume that about everything now it she she'd been showing up uh, high at her place of work turns out you can fuck up serving burgers i guess and uh she and she had a strange rash on her arm which for lack of any other thing to focus on made us all kind of think of mike and the fact that he's missing that arm that uh, she was scratching and you know the penguin jeff the penguin uh, i yeah. think that was where we left off on with, this, with this episode and, and the zebras too um <laughs> Uh, Just my thought on the rash. We remember that there is a new drug that is on the market on Twin Peaks, in Twin Peaks being uh, dealt by red. It's a strange new drug. It might give you the powers to fling uh, dimes up into the air and let them hover, but it might also have some nasty side effects. She did seem to suggest that she was drugged out or stoned or having some kind of like withdrawal. And I'm wondering if the rash is a side effect of this drug and that if maybe there's going to be an epidemic, an outbreak, a rash, if you will, of rashes um, in Twin Peaks um, in the junkie population. Like Twin Peaks is now, it's like it's, it's a whole Batman Joker plot. You know, like the Joker has poisoned the water supply of, of of Gotham and now everyone's getting sick. Well, that's what read that big Joker. That's what he's doing. That's my big theory. About, I like that. About- I like that. I will just add to 
if nothing else, Twin Peaks is anti-drug, Jeff. Twin Peaks <laughs> comes down firmly against strange new drugs coming from uh, Canada and from Balthazar Getty. Uh, everybody out there, what an episode. Great fun to talk about. All the stuff going on. We're halfway through this season. Would love to hear some of your thoughts. On Twitter, he's at Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor yet. You can also email us at uh, twinpeaks@ew.com. Lot to dig into in this episode, which did literally have a message from beyond written in code. If you like what you heard today, go on iTunes, give us a rate and review. We'd love to hear what you think. And uh, we'll be back next week talking about part 10 of the Showtime revival of Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks.